Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio today is my friend and guest, Elizabeth Mills, who I'm very excited to chat with in just a moment. But first, I want to read to all of you uh, some additional advice that a reader has sent in uh, in response to a letter that I received a couple of weeks ago. It was from a uh, letter writer who had finally started making enough money that they were able not only to pay their own bills and save some money, that they would sometimes be able to do things like buy holiday decorations or eat a meal outside of the house. Uh, And they were having a really difficult time giving themselves permission to occasionally buy something that was not an absolute necessity. And they were kind of looking for guidance, not in budgeting or planning how to handle having the money. They they sounded like they had a pretty good handle on that. But how to say, it's okay to buy, you know, $20 worth of Christmas ornaments for my kids that they're really excited about. I can do that. Um, They'd had a hard time. So this letter uh, was called No Longer Struggling. And someone wrote in with with this uh, input. I've been in the same situation of no longer struggling in that I had to learn how to let myself buy non-essentials just for fun. After many years of a really uncertain income with many ups and downs, my income finally became fairly stable, and the buffer money I'd been setting aside got large enough that I could stop worrying about my day-to-day needs. A whole lifetime of being frugal made it very hard to start spending money. It was difficult, but I was eventually able to let myself quote-unquote waste money occasionally on meals out, shows, art, toys for my kids, etc. However, what let me do this was trusting myself to be aware of what I was spending and why. When I faced the instinctive sense of don't spend this money, you shouldn't, I would ask myself the following questions. Do I really want this? Can I justify it in my monthly budget? And will it be worth it? I think the big danger of letting yourself have the extra stuff is giving yourself permission so often that you eventually find yourself in debt. I think that setting a quote-unquote mad money amount is one helpful approach. If you have the discipline and can safely decide without a formal budget, then playing it by ear can work without jeopardizing your financial future. I've occasionally put back a very inexpensive item as not worth it, and shortly thereafter spent much more on a non-essential item that I did consider worth it. At the end of the last year, my savings have grown a reasonable amount, and my life is a lot better. I think the key is to keep a sense of scale and perspective about the spending. So I hope that that proves helpful to that letter writer. I hope so much that you let yourself buy those Christmas decorations that your kids were so excited about. Uh, And I hope that you can find a good balance between denying yourself everything and opening up the desire to buy more and more that would potentially put you in a difficult position. And keep us posted. Let us know how you're doing. All right. On that note, I want to welcome Elizabeth Mills to the studio. Uh, She has one of my favorite introductions I've gotten to read in a while. Elizabeth Mills is a professional trans lesbian and an amateur fiction writer from New England who spends a lot of time screaming on Twitter. Elizabeth, welcome, you professional trans lesbian Twitter screamer. (laughs) Hey, Ma, what's Um, up? It's so good to hear your wonderful, wonderful voice. And I have been setting aside questions specifically for you that felt like even if they did not deal directly with lesbianism, felt like the kind of problem a lesbian might have. Please do not ask any follow-up questions about what that means, because I don't know. <laughs> One day I'll teach you. How uh, how you doing? How you doing today? I'm not, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. Uh, it's... Uh... Unfortunately, in a very early start to my day, seeing as that I sleep for 12 hours most of the time. But oh, congratulations. Uh, finally. Uh, but no, I'm ready to say things like, you know, well, I can't say the things that I wanted to when you I originally asked me on the show, which is uh, break up and just kiss girls. <laughs> yes, I, I foiled you because I was like, oh, I'm going to find some people who are already doing that and still have problems. Exactly. So you just kind of screwed me on my easy job here. Look, all I ever want to do is stymie the well-meaning 
and make life slightly more difficult for my friends who just want to help the world. That's all I want. And I think I was able to achieve. Um, but yeah, I'm super jazzed and uh, kind of keeping actually in the theme of like money and finances, um, it, like seamlessly transitioning from our, our intro seamlessly. to our first letter uh, is more stuff about uh, money and cash and fears around it and about other people. And I would love it if you would go ahead and read that letter. Oh, okay. Um, Subject is gift anxiety, and it goes a little something like this. Dear Prudence, I need gift ideas for my younger sister. She's insisting on cash, but I think cash is the last thing I should be giving her. She has dropped out of several trade schools. She's been in many abusive relationships with addicts and one man who is currently stalking her, although we think we will see him behind bars soon. I should mention, too, that my sister is a daily marijuana user and cannot eat, sleep, or generally function without smoking. The longest she's ever held a job is around six months, and she nearly always leaves suddenly on bad terms. Given her instability over the past five years, I do suspect that there is either hard drug use or some major mental health problems, or both, that has led my sister to where she is today, which is living back in my mother's house after abandoning her apartment suddenly. Mom has always paid my sister's housing and a large chunk of her bills. I've approached my sister numerous times over the years about how counseling would be helpful to her. I only do this when she seems like she's asking for help, i.e. telling me how poorly she's feeling or that she's so anxious she can't think. I'm doing my best not to be pushy or condescending. I end the discussion when she pushes back or makes excuses for why she doesn't want that type of help. I do not bring up her marijuana use or other, currently unconfirmed, drug use concerns. I know that would only make her angry and end the conversation. I've shared my concerns with my mom and my other sister, but they also don't have much luck talking these things over with her. Right now, she's in a very bad mental place, worried, and reasonably so, about her stalker having flashbacks and mood swings. She's not able to hold a normal conversation without becoming angry or triggered. I've asked her for gift ideas for Christmas this year, including any help she might want getting back on her feet, and she couldn't even give me a single idea. She later told my youngest sister she just wants cash. Given how unstable she is and the drug use concerns, I don't want to give her the cash. Mom is covering all of her expenses anyway. I still want to do something nice for my sister and would especially love to help to get her into a more stable place, but I am at a total loss as to how to do that. Traditionally, I've given her uh, substantial things like a fuel-only gift card, but now that feels like possibly enabling her. Woo! That was a long one. And unfortunately, kind of thorny, because my initial thought was, if I had the kind of life that your the letter writer's sister has, I would be smoking weed every day, too. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those things where it, cash solves so many problems, also. Which is not to say, by the way, letter writer, that you need to give your sister cash. I think it also... It's rarely helpful to spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not somebody else should have cash because we all, I think, to varying degrees, spend our own money um, sometimes wisely, sometimes not so wisely. Uh, sometimes we prioritize uh, short-term survival over long-term strategizing, uh, especially when we're in a high-pressure, high-panic um you know, low safety situation like the one your sister finds herself in. And that, again, that's not to say that every choice she's making is a fabulous one or one that you need to 100% get behind. Uh, but I think sometimes from a different perspective, people will think it doesn't make any sense that you're not prioritizing these longer term sensible strategies. And for someone who's in a crisis, um, sometimes uh, getting through the day is the biggest priority because it is not a given. Um, and so a, a lot of times I think people make choices uh, that to someone else would look really irrational or really foolish or really deserving of punishment. Um, and I think generally speaking, um, even if one does it maladaptively, people are looking out for their own self-interest as best they can. Um, so it Again, that does not mean you have to sign off on everything that your sister is doing, um, but I, I can certainly understand why she is clearly experiencing a lot of internal distress. Um, she's experiencing a lot of yeah. external pain, um, and, and I, 
I think you're probably right in assuming that she is doing some self-medicating. Um, and and I think you do seem to have a general sense of compassion. Like, I'm not seeing in this letter a ton of she's a waste and a deadbeat and she doesn't deserve cash. And I hope she gets punished into different behavior so much as she is suffering and making a lot of choices that concern me. I'm trying to talk to her about it well, but in a way that makes it clear I'm not trying to be her parent. Um, but I'm also not sure what would be actually helpful versus what would help her to continue um painful, self-destructive behavior. So this was a very long way of saying, you seem like a good, concerned sibling. This is a difficult situation. I feel for you both. Honestly, I I agree that the concern is there and that letter writer, obviously, you're not supposed to sign off on what she's doing or, um, or agree with it all. But having been in that kind of a bad mental place with flashbacks and mood swings and just a general trying to live day to day. There's not a whole lot that people outside of that situation can do to help you. It's something that you have to, you have to get through it on your own and you need resources to do that. And it's like Mallory just said, it's hard, if not impossible to actually do long-term planning and figure out, well, after this week I need to do X because you don't even know if you're going to get through this week. You're just worried about today. You're just worried about the next six hours or the next hour or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I would say there's a lot of, I feel like I'm, I, the, the goal here is not to answer questions the letter writer isn't asking because I, I, I'm so tempted to be like, here are the next eight things you should and could do. Um, so much <laughs> as you are asking me, letter writer, can I can I give her something that's not cash? And the answer to that is yeah. absolutely. Um, you never have to give someone a gift just because they have said, I would like this. Like a gift is not mm. an obligation. Um, it is okay to get someone something that they... Uh, You know, if somebody says, I want cash, that does not mean that you are now bound to give them cash. And if you don't, you're a mean or a bad person. Um, The only caveat to that in this situation is that it might, you might have a fight on your hands afterwards. Well, maybe, but also maybe not. Like, it's not like your sister said to you directly, please give me cash so much as like, it was not a question she could really respond to. It it seemed kind of more like the sister was sort of like, I really have not been thinking a lot about Christmas presents. Um, And, yeah, whether or not, like, a ton of drug use is on the table, I I can kind of understand why, aside from thinking about cash, there's just not a lot on her radar of, like, you know, especially if you're this level of, like, depressed and panicked. It's like, I don't take enjoyment Mm. in the things that I used to enjoy, Um, whereas cash that helps me meet my needs uh, is kind of always in style, like, (laughs) you know, like, so... Uh, to that end, it goes with everything. Yeah, it really does. Um, so I think it's totally fine for you to decide. I don't want to give my sister money. I don't think that's you being unnecessarily punitive or judgmental. Um, you certainly don't need to go into detail. Like, hey, I got you this, and by the way, I've thought seriously about giving you cash, but decided you can't handle it. Like, but no, you're not obligated to give her cash. Um, uh, if you feel like you, you. Ah. Sorry, I'm really trying to thread a bunch of needles at the same time. I would say, before you give your sister a gift for Christmas, let go of the fear of enabling her. Um, It does not Mm -hmm. sound like the dynamic you are describing is one where you are constantly bailing her out or enabling her to continue doing really harmful and self-destructive things. Like, that does not seem to be the dynamic the two of you have. So, when it comes to... This is the intersection of Christmas and bad situations. Yeah, so when it comes to this particular gift, I think it would just be helpful to say... I may get it wrong. She may sell it and buy drugs with it. I I don't know. And I'm not going to follow her around with a camera 24 hours a day to make sure that she doesn't do that. So in giving her this gift, um, I'm going to let go of the possibility that I can know what she's going to do with it. I'm going to give it and then be done. Once I have given it, you know, my sphere of influence over the gift and how she enjoys it is over. So whatever you believe you can give her with that mindset is what I think you should give her. Yeah, that sounds uh, best of a bad situation. Yeah. So if if the fuel only gift card uh, doesn't feel right, you know, she's, she says she's often so anxious that she can't think. Um, so maybe not like a thick book about World War II, uh, but anything that you think she might find relaxing. Um, I don't want to give you like real specific gift ideas, but... Um, 
you know, there's lots of gifts you can get people under the like, hey, this is helpful to relax, whether it's like, here's a bunch of fancy chamomile tea to here is like one of those pillows that you can heat up and that smells like lavender. Or here's a gift certificate to get a massage or like somebody who will come to your house and do it professionally. So you don't have to like make all the arrangements because sometimes when you're this like panicked and anxious, um, that feels too difficult. Um, or, or, or or just some basic life needs stuff because letter writer, you mentioned that she left her apartment suddenly, so she might be missing out on some of the creature comforts she'd gotten used to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing, like she's in a rough way. So if Christmas this year is kind of difficult, if you get her something and you spend a lot of time on it and her response is a little bit inert, that's okay. Like your sister's going through a rough year and that's just reality. So if, if you feel a little let down, a little disappointed, if she does not respond with like total engagement, excitement, joy, appreciation, that's just that's just reality. Like you're not going to be magically in different places just because it's Christmas. So I think just kind of go in knowing you love your sister, you care about her, you're trying to walk the line between helping her and not enabling her. And Christmas this year might just be kind of depressing. And that, that is okay. There will be a lot more Christmases in the future and that you don't have to carry all this by yourself, that your sister does have a place to stay, that you believe there's a really good chance that her stalker will soon be behind bars. Um that she is staying with a family member who knows at least that on a daily basis her needs are met. All of those are are good things. Like th- that, that's something to hold on to. That's real and that's meaningful. Not as bad as it could be. Yeah, yeah. It's not amazing, but uh, you know, you guys are as a family moving in the direction of helping. And and maybe she's not ready to see a counselor right now, but you have brought it up in the past and you've dropped it when it feels like it's not getting productive. And and that's a good boundary to hold. Huh. Good luck. Please keep us posted on how that goes. I hope that your Christmas is as good as it can possibly be, even if the best possible Christmas is just one where you guys, you know, kind of get through the day. Sometimes you just get through the day. Yeah. All right. I have saved this one for you. Oh, thank you so much. The subject line is, no, really, we're just friends. And listeners should know that uh, Elizabeth and I were starting to have a great back and forth about... Um, <laughs> How how this situation could come to pass, because it is about two women who are getting married and one of them is concerned about someone who is previously part of her fiance's life. And I was a little surprised that how are you two women getting married and only one of you has an ex that the other one is concerned about? There should be at least five. There should at least be three on each uh, side. Yeah. And then you kindly reminded me that that is not everyone's experience. You did not use that voice. I am, I'm using a silly voice to judge myself. Well, no, it's OK. I have a very silly voice, too. Um but yeah, it was surprising to me of just like, it seems like there should be several. I'm just surprised they got to the point of engagement without this becoming a bigger issue. Yeah, I I mean, I, I think I should just read the letter at this point because I have a lot of thoughts. Read the letter first. But yeah, yeah, here we go. So now that we've spoiled it and you all know what's coming. Dear Prudence, <laughs> in college, I joined a sports team and ended up becoming extremely close to a core group of women there. We'd study together, party together, and considered each other sisters on and off the field. During my sophomore year, I drunkenly hooked up with my straight teammate, Sarah. The next day, we both agreed that it was a mistake and decided to stay friends. It hasn't come up between us since. Five years later, I'm engaged to a kind, smart, and beautiful woman who loves my former teammates except for Sarah. While my fiancé is nothing but polite and friendly to Sarah on the rare occasions that my teammates and I all get together, she'd rather Sarah not be in my life at all. She doesn't want Sarah at our wedding and hates that I maintain a friendship with her. Except for that one instance, there's never been any romantic undertones to our friendship. This has been the source of many intense fights, and I don't know what to do. We've seen a therapist over this, but we both remain steadfast in our views. I'm not willing to cut off a meaningful friendship over a single event that happened half a decade ago. Not to mention it would cause a huge rift in the rest of my friend group. How do I go about handling this? By the way, I would absolutely read the, like, emotional romance novel version of this story called Sisters on and Off the Field. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. You are an amateur fiction writer. Please write the lesbian college romance sisters on and off the field immediately. Thank you. Oh, it's it's the romance of our dreams, honestly. But here, unfortunately, no, not unfortunately. I apologize. It's a little more realistic. And I I don't really have many answers for this because your fiance, letter writer, is being nothing but polite and friendly to Sarah on the rare occasions that you meet up with your teammates still. And uh, so it sounds as if there's nothing there that's causing friction and it's just between you two. And 
while a large part of me is still asking, how did this only become an issue now with your engagement? I have to, uh, you might want to cut those rare occasions with your teammates down to nothing. No, or at the very Ooh, least, this is great. We're going to fight. Keep going. Go well. It's it's like you either do that or you have to just deal for the rest of your life. Hopefully, fingers crossed, with the fact that your wife hates one of your best friends. Like it's, and if if you don't want to cut off your relationship with the teammates, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Mal. What do you I, think? I, yeah, I I I am so on the side of your fiance needs to do something more productive with her feelings than what she has been doing. So, you know, it's one thing, um, you know, different couples can kind of have different standards about how do we engage with our exes? What's our relationship with like other people that we've been involved with in the past? I'm not saying there's like a one size fits all rule of like everyone has to be chill with this many exes and this level of relationship in somebody's life. But we are talking about a good friend of yours who you have known for over five years, who you hooked up with once in college, and it's never come up since. Like, this is not an ex. This is not someone you used to be involved with. This is a friend plus a blip. Um, like, this woman's not even gay. Like, the, the, the degree to which what happened between the two of you five years ago when you hooked up is not a factor in the way that you relate to one another now is enormous. Like, this is... Uh, this is as close as you can get to a friend that you have never hooked up with while still having hooked up with them. <laughs> um, Except for the, the one yeah, part. So, so there's that aspect of it. And like, I'm glad that at the very least your fiance is friendly to Sarah um, when you guys get together. Like, that's a good sign. Um, but like, you guys don't even get together that often. It's not like she's saying, I don't want to see Sarah, you know, three nights a week. She comes over for dinner too often. Um like, mm. this is a person who's an important part of your life, uh, but it is not a daily part of your life. So it's great that your fiancé is nice, but to say, I need you to end this friendship, because, you know, not inviting her to the wedding uh, and then not having... She's asking that of you, right? She'd rather Sarah not be in my yeah, life. Yeah. Like, that's that's her, that's her stance. Um, mm-hmm. And you are saying... This is not a person I flirt with. This is not a person I have a long history with. This is not a person that has the same sexual orientation as me. Um, this is a friend that I see occasionally, and that's important to me. Um, and that's it. Like you've, It sounds like you've been an open book with your fiancé, right? Like she's aware that you guys hooked up. You have not been keeping anything from her. You're not seeing Sarah secretly on the side. Um, so I'm, I, I would yeah, love would to know story. more about like what is your fiancé's like what what is she afraid of here does she want you to never spend time with anyone that you may have gone on one date with or or hooked up with once like does she expect you to cut anyone you have ever kissed or slept with out of your life now that the two of you are together like i'm curious is this the only thing that has come up between the two of you when it comes to your romantic history like are there other ways in which she gets jealous or tries to suggest that like you should cut people out of your life mm. I could also see this just being it just being a matter of uh, Sarah, because like we all have that one straight girl that we crushed over and it was just nothing ever came of it, save for, you know, daydreams and stuff. So the fact that there actually was a one night stand and the fact that there is contact could just be, unfortunately, sending her imagination into an overdrive leading to these fights. But that's, yeah, I mean, unless the letter writer is keeping a lot from us and, like, held a torch for Sarah for a very long time, it sounds like yeah. it was one wacky night it's in college. It's all her fiancé as opposed to the letter writer. Yeah, so I, I think the conversation that you need to have with your fiancé, um, especially given that the therapy has not been helpful, that you guys repeatedly fight about it, um, that neither of you is willing to budge. That's important, right? Like you, letter writer, are not saying, mm-hmm. eh, Sarah's not that great a friend anyways, kind of wouldn't mind losing her. Like this is a line that you want to hold. And I think that that's right. I think that's appropriate. I think you should want to hold that line. And it's good to be having this out before you are married. Um, but for you to say, here's the deal. Um, Sarah is a good longstanding friend of mine. She means a lot to me. I do not see her as an ex. Um, there is no flirtation between us. Uh, we do not have a romantic undertone to our relationship. She is a good friend of mine and she's important to me. Um, and I'm not going to end our friendship over this. So what I want to know from you, fiance, is 
um, what are you afraid of? Um, like, like share with me what you fear from Sarah. Um, and let's talk about that. But you need to know um, that there is not a, a future where I kick Sarah out of my life in order to soothe your jealousies and anxieties. I want to help you address your jealousy and anxiety, but I cannot do that by whittling down my group of friends because that's not going to address the real problem, which is how you feel about us. Like either you you don't trust me or you don't trust Sarah or you don't trust our relationship. And I want to know which one of those it is um, because I, I, that's the important thing to address. Like if I cut Sarah out of my life and we don't address what's underneath that, eventually it will be someone else. There will be somebody else that you will want me to get rid of. Um, and I would... The band-aid over the problem, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is not like, oh, Sarah and I were on and off involved for five years and we're super close. We have a lot <laughs> of inside jokes that we leave my fiance out of. This is like part of your, I don't know, rugby team sisterhood. Or I'm, I'm assuming it's rugby. Maybe that is stereotypical. <laughs> it might be softball. It could be field yeah, hockey. I think we covered the big three. There are many options. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think it's just important to let your fiance know, like, um, I'm not going to cut Sarah out of my life. Um, that is not something that will happen. So knowing that, um, what can we, how can we talk about this? Um, and I, I think that's an important line to hold. Like, I do not think that you should drop this years-long friendship that means a lot to you because in college you guys hooked up once and then we're like that was a bad idea no yeah definitely i mean ignore my initial advice because or my initial thought on this because mal is right this is this goes a lot deeper than sarah and there are if you haven't had these talks already in therapy it's something to explore and you need to figure out if this is if you holding this line is the end of the line for you two. But I, I also get it. Like, I, I do understand, you know, if, if somebody asked that of one on a first date, it would be really clear. Like, that is an unhealthy and weird thing to say. I'm not going to go on a second date Definitely. with you. But when stuff like this comes up after you are engaged to someone, you love them. And you think that, you know, I want to make this work. So you'll kind of try to talk yourself into, well, maybe it's reasonable or maybe it would help. Like, I, I do understand where you're coming from in that sense of... It can seem like I wouldn't want to lose a fiancé over someone who is not as important to me as a fiancé. Um, and when you're framing it like that, it can feel like, well, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe I could do this for them. Um, but I think that that is the the attempt of the mind to say there's there's got to be a way to fix this without um, acknowledging the underlying dysfunction. And I think that that is, is not worth doing. But I wish you a lot of luck. It's like there's an earthquake going on and you're trying to save all the plates and you're ignoring the fact that something's rumbling underneath. Yeah. And it's always hard if it feels like, you know, implicit in here is the fear that this may end up being a deal breaker, right? And I can totally understand. Yeah, totally. It would feel terrible to think of if I lost my fiance over, you know, a friend who I care about, but who I don't want to spend the rest of my life with, like that would feel terrible. And I totally understand that's hopefully not what ends up happening. But I really think if you got rid of Sarah, it would not end the issue of your fiance's jealousy and insecurity. It would just um, reset the clock and then it would start counting down again until she felt like there was somebody else that you needed to get rid of. Oh, good luck. Oof. All right. Would you be so good as to read the next one? Of course. This one, the subject is can't count past two. Dear Prudence, I'm having difficulty recognizing the expanded gender spectrum, i.e. everyone who sees themselves as something other than cis or trans, and I'm hoping for advice on what to do. To clarify, I already know and am friends with non-binary people, and I've done plenty of research on the subject to try to address the issue. I understand the spectrum on a logical sense. It is not a new problem for me, but an issue I've failed to resolve over years. The problem seems to be in my own head and how I box and pattern match people. I've tried repeatedly to add at least a third gender box in my head. I've turned John is a gender or Chris is non-binary into mental mantras, but it doesn't sink in. I stumble over their pronouns. And when I think of these people in my head, I think of them as the gender they first appeared when I met them. Everything else is an addendum that I actively need to tack on to the end of what I think they are each and every time. Even when I get all the right words out loud the first time, I feel like a fraud inside. I'm ashamed of myself and the fact that I spend all of this time and all of these resources without any improvement to show for it. I don't know what else to do or what I haven't tried already. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. I mean, first, just as a matter of housekeeping, I would like to address the fact that um, if someone is a gender or if someone is non-binary, they are trans. 
They are not cis. They are trans as the day is long. Um, because being trans is, uh, it's a discomfort with what people said that you came out and they said, you're a boy. And well, I said to them, no, not really. Um, and the same for any gender or non-binary person. Yeah. And, um, as for the problem, it is in your own head and letter writer, I'm, this might sound a little harsh, but so long as you are getting those pronouns correct, so long as you are honoring who these uh, acquaintances and friends are, and so long as you keep attempting to do that, it's not an issue so much as it's just something that you're going to have to deal with because we were all raised in the gender binary and it is hard to overcome. But <sighs> breaking out of it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and you can't get discouraged just because the conditioning of the world is telling you, no, that's wrong. They are X when they tell you that they're Y. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you in that sense of yes. Letter writer. I think you're being really hard on yourself. Um, and I, I do not have a fix for how do I make these feelings go away? Um, I, I like that you're already kind of doing a mantra in terms of making sure that your actions supersede the sort of thoughts that are going on in your head. And I think another mantra that's just helpful when those feelings of feeling like a fraud or panic or I'm, I'm a bad person for not you know, being able to explode the gender binary inherent in my own mind as, as quickly as I might like um, to just say, <laughs> this is just a feeling of discomfort. I don't have to do anything about it and it will pass. Um, you know, part of what I would want to caution you not to do is I feel like you might be moving in a direction where you start to feel so bad, you feel the need to kind of unburden yourself um, onto possibly one of the trans people in your life. And I think that that would be a real mistake. Um, and it might feel like they in that moment that. of, please help me. I, I feel so terrible. I, I need to be, you know, assisted in some way. Um, not that I want to accuse you of trying to do that. You don't say that that's something that you're about to do. It just, you know, sometimes I think if we think I've got to fix these feelings rather than this is just a feeling that I can name, label, categorize, acknowledge, and and not do anything about, we can kind of feel like I have to do something with this. Maybe if I share it with somebody else, it will be helpful. And, and I don't think that it would be helpful, um, especially not to the trans people in your life who are already dealing with a lot um, and, and are struggling with, you know, thinking outside of the like really standard gender binary that uh, all of us were, were raised to understand. So to number one, remember, you don't have to do anything with these feelings. You're already doing everything that you need to. Um, it is not uh, a problem that you are doing the right thing and having kind of um, repetitive thoughts. Like it, it doesn't feel good, of course. Like I, I do hope that eventually that, you know, dulls down to a dull roar. but um, that's okay. Those feelings do not mean that you are, in fact, a transphobic person. Um, it, it just means that your brain is is kind of like pausing and saying like, but I am so used to all of these conscious and unconscious ways that I have assigned other people a gender category, you know, within a 0.5 seconds of looking at them. And now you are making me think consciously about something that I used to do automatically, that used to be supported by every aspect of society without question. <laughs> like, of course, your brain, it's, I would liken it to, you know, when you're like when you've got great sleep hygiene, you just go to bed on time and then you fall asleep and it's fine. <sighs> I haven't done that in years. It sounds so good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then if you have insomnia or you're staying up because you're really anxious, your brain is constantly scanning your body. Am I asleep yet? Have I fallen asleep yet? And having that thought makes it impossible <laughs> to fall asleep. And so you just turn yourself inside out trying to get to sleep, but you fail in the yeah. end. And so I think part of what your brain is doing now is you are just thinking consciously about stuff that you used to think was automatic. Like, you used to, on some level, think everybody is either a man or a woman. Uh, everybody's, uh, you know, uh, social, like, category lines up with the way that they are, like, the way that they look, the way that they dress, the, the category they were assigned at birth. It's all just one big thing. Everyone's one of two things. That's it. And now your brain is relearning a lifetime of that. And, and you are coming into contact with all the ways in which people are just, you know, forcibly assigned gender throughout the day, throughout every interaction. And of course, your brain is like, whoa, 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 I need a minute. 
Um, I am really used to doing this. And now you are telling me I have to do something different um, so that you are experiencing a real uptick in thoughts and old assumptions that do not feel like they line up with your values is just your brain getting up to speed. So it does not mean that you are secretly not supportive of your friends um, or that there is a part of your brain that is like, ah, the gender binary is true and must be upheld in all ways. Um, Your brain is just adjusting to a big shift. And frankly, sorry, I'm really going on. I will wrap up in a second and let you jump in. Um, But in some ways, like, I I think you should allow this constant thinking about gender to... um, allow you to have more empathy and compassion and understanding for what some of your trans friends may go through. Um, because you're feeling this level of distress, just thinking about gender in terms of categories as a cisgender person, um, somebody who is entertaining these thoughts while also questioning their own location in the gender spectrum. <laughs> it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's painful. It's, it's hardest thing. You're it's life. so hard. It's, it's constant. You doubt yourself a lot. You question things a lot. Mm-hmm. You feel panic. You, you're constantly scanning things that used to feel really, um, not worth remarking upon. Um, it, it takes a lot for anybody to time. see it differently. Though I will, I will caution on one thing. You said that, um, Mal said that you letter writer are not a transphobic person. And that's true to a degree because you're trying, you are attempting to fight back against the cultural programming, but you are still transphobic because you still have that programming and you're trying to get it out of your head. You're, you know, trying to kill the transphobe inside your brain, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, and just, a just, a final piece of advice for me on that is um, like you've, you know, John is a gender or Chris is non-binary and um, these people might not be your friends, but they're still just people. So you have to remember they know their gender. They know who they are. Trust them. If you can't trust yourself and just keep trying, just keep waking up and remembering that they know who they are and they don't need you making that harder. That's such a good point too. Cause I think it can be easy for somebody in a position of relative power to think the goal is to not be this type of person. Right. Um, like mm-hmm. oftentimes when, oh, God, when yeah. you know, like for example, when white people, uh, when somebody says, Hey, you said or did something racist. Um, we will turn that into, Oh no, I am being called a racist. That is a bad thing to be. I must deny that assignment. Um, I have to get defensive and deny it. Right. And so do not worry about, am I, you know, not that you shouldn't worry, but like, don't let the biggest question be, oh, no, am I transphobic? Because the answer is just sometimes, yeah, because you you, you grew up in a transphobic society. So as long as you can accept not, oh, that's great, fantastic, just do whatever. um, But just say like, yes, that will happen. Because I have been raised in a society and I'm, I'm operating with these assumptions. And my goal is not to I could never be that kind of person. My goal is to be as supportive and helpful to trans people as possible. Um, And with that goal in mind, um, I think you will stand an excellent chance of continuing to do more good um, and to continue to unlearn and dismantle the transphobia uh, that exists within you, within all of us. Um, And and that will be really good and, and it will help. Good luck. Yeah. All right. So next letter on a totally unrelated note is... Back to family interpersonal Back dynamics. To family and expectations and what can Ugh. we say no to? And I'm very excited because letter writer, I think that there is so much you can say no to. And I'm very excited to help you say no. It's so true. the subject line of the- saying no is actually very freeing. Yeah, it really is, especially in this situation where it seems like you do not feel a great degree of freedom. And I hope we can give some to you. So the subject line of this letter is just stressed. Dear Prudence. My sister Anne is quite a bit older than I am. Anne is single with no children. Both our parents and siblings are dead, and I'm the only family she has left. When I was very young, Anne moved far away. She contacted us by an occasional letter and a rare phone call and visited every couple of years. My mother used to say that Anne only visited when she had some other reason to be in town. Several years ago, Anne decided to move home. She told me that she felt she needed to be closer to me as she got older so that I could help her. My partner and I helped her pack helped her clean up her house, which was a potential hoarders episode, helped her move, and found a senior apartment here. Then she got sick and declined quickly. I was forced to arrange for her to enter a nursing home where she's a Medicaid patient. My husband and child and I do her laundry and buy her snacks whenever she wants them. Sometimes we're there every weekend with clean clothes and with any snacks that we've purchased for her. The visits vary from 20 minutes to an hour or so. 
Recently, Anne wrote me an email complaining that we don't spend enough time with her. She wants us to stay longer when we visit, bring home-cooked meals, and bring my grandchild with us. The facility doesn't have any accommodations for her food to be refrigerated or heated up, I asked. As for my grandchild, they're still very young and afraid of the nursing home. My kid is also reluctant to force my grandchild to visit. Anne shows no interest in anything about my life, won't ask basic how-are-you-doing questions. Recently, when my husband had emergency surgery, she texted me to vent about something she was upset about at the nursing home, even though I told her that I wasn't going to be available while I waited to hear his results. She never asked how he was doing. I work full-time at a fairly stressful job. I'm trying so hard to do the right thing by Anne, but I find myself getting resentful and angry. She wasn't there for any of my childhood or adulthood. She has no interest in my life now, and she still expects me to spend what little free time I have paying attention to her. I don't plan to quit visiting, but I'm not interested in staying a lot longer or in visiting more often. I get that being in a nursing home is hard. I'd probably visit longer if she was at all interested in anything about me or my life, but she's not. And I know she has other friends. Wow, that's heavy. Yeah. Um, It sounds as if, letter writer, your sister has realized that she doesn't have that much time left and wants to... And wanted to come back home and maybe reconnect and has since gotten very bad about it and is seeing you as less of a sister and more of a, well, she's here. We have this familial connection. If I tug on it enough, I can get whatever I want. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I'm, you have to start saying no, because like your needs are important too. your life, the life that you had and the life that is still continuing, even though she is here is yours and it needs to be taken care of. Yeah, I think that's so true. I I think the fact that Anne does not have a lot of like meaningful connections or relationships in her life right now is because she has not invested in other people. So part of what she's experiencing Mm -hmm. right now, while very sad, is a totally predictable outcome of a life spent not asking other people how they are doing not meeting them halfway, not showing interest in them until she can get something out of them. So. And well, yeah. And and it's and evidence for that is, and she decided that she needed to move back home to, so that you could take care of her. Right. It doesn't sound like she asked. You could be the one responsible for that. It's, it's unfortunate that this is happening to her and you are right to feel sad about it and upset. But your feelings have to take precedence. Yeah. Your life has to take precedence. Yeah. And you're already doing a lot for her. You're visiting regularly. You do her laundry. You bring her food. Um, that's really kind. And and that's not to say that you should, like, you know, hold that over her head. But I, I think it's really okay for you to just say, you know, that won't be possible. But I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. And I'll have your laundry. Um, and... You know, if she wants to spend the 20 minutes kind of complaining, um, you know, I think you can say, look, I would much rather spend our time together talking about what's going on in both of our lives. Um, If all you want to do is try to, you know, guilt me into coming more often, let me tell you right now, um, this is not an effective way to get me to visit again. I'm going to (laughs) go. Yeah. Like you can do that. You can say, I love you. I care about you. I, I have no interest in having a half hour conversation where I get yelled at. So if that's all you can talk about, I'm going to leave. And that's going to feel really hard. It will feel perhaps cruel because you will think, oh, but she is alone and she is ill. Uh, and those are true things. And I'm very sorry about that. But that does not mean that she um, that she can just say or do whatever she wants to you and you have to take it. You can say, I actually don't deserve to get yelled at for 30 minutes. I'm going to go. Exactly. And I advise against thinking this often, but she left you first. You are, what you have done so far is not magnanimous in in light of that, but it's definitely more than I would do for my family. Yeah, it's really. <laughs> if they had pulled this on really me. It's really kind. And, and I think, um, you know, don't don't hold that over her head. Don't like, you know, weaponize what you've already done for her as sort of like, and I'll take it away. Um, but to just say, no, no, just just use that in your head to say, well, this is cruel. I shouldn't just be this hard line with her. But you have yeah. to be you have to mark that territory out and say, listen, this is where we are right now. If you're interested in changing that, you can talk yep. to me. 
Yeah. And to just say, you know, right now the kid's too young, uh, especially if your kid's young or sorry, your grandchild is young and like maybe does not have all of their vaccinations yet. Like being in a nursing home is not the healthiest situation for a young child. And so to just say, you know, my kid's, yeah, my kid's not OK with it and they don't have all their shots um, and to just say no. And if she wants to kind of go into a back and forth, you just get to say, I, you know, I can't make that happen. I'm sorry. Same with the food stuff or visiting more often. Um, just say no. And if she wants to go back and forth or argue, you can just say you know, the answer is no, I'm really sorry. We can talk about something else, but I'm not going to go back and forth on this with you. Um, and then, mm. man, when it comes to your visits, I think it's really, sometimes when somebody gets old, if they've been doing something for a long time, people will say things like, well, that's just how they are, or they're set in their ways. And that's not to say that you're yeah, going to be able change. to change her, but I, I think it's really okay to say, I would love to talk a little bit about something that's going on with me, or it would mean a lot to me if you would ask me how I'm doing sometimes. You can say those things, or even if she's just going on for 25 minutes about something that she doesn't like, you can say, hey, I'm glad that you can share this with me, but can we can we move on conversationally to talk about something else? Um, like, it's very okay to say those things. Like, you do not have to um, just sit in silence and wait for her to ask. You can say, I want you to ask me about how I'm doing. Yeah. And the one-sided relationship is certainly going to do you, letter writer, no favors when you have all of that stress on top of this. Yeah, I know. I just, I, I feel for you. I, I do feel sorry for Anne. Like, it does not sound like her life is wildly enjoyable oh, no, right definitely. now. But it's also a lot of these are problems that she has created for herself. Um, and she has the power to handle them differently if she decides to. So hold those limits. Say no. Be kind and patient when you are with her, but also, you know, take care of yourself. And if she just wants to yell, you can absolutely say, I'm going to go. Um, like, you do not have to just sign up for letting her treat you however she wants whenever you visit. And either that will spur her to fake a little more interest in you, or she will get <laughs> angrier and more entitled and you will have to draw back. And that would be sad, but that would be a direct result of her choices and not you being cruel. Yeah. The unfortunate reality is that family can be really super shitty to us. And it's just something that it, at, at some point you have to say, I can't invest any more of myself in this because it's it's hurting me. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but no. Yeah. And I think so many people can, again, like kind of use being older or ill. And that's not to say that anyone who's older ill does this, but sometimes it can happen that like somebody who was a jerk their whole life gets old and ill. And then we'll kind of use that to say, you have to give me what I want, regardless of how I have yeah. treated you in the past, because I am closer to death than you are. Um, in a way that sometimes <laughs> makes us think, oh, I guess I do have to because you're in this very sad position. Um, but, no. but no, like sometimes it, death happens eventually. And how you get there is some of it is up to right. you. And, and, you know, her needs are being met. She has friends that she's occasionally in contact with. Um, she is being looked after medically. You you know, she's getting clean clothes. She is not being abused or mistreated. Again, not that that should be like the only bar that you clear. Um, but don't let her demands for more convince you that you are, you know, somehow abandoning her to, you know, dying in the gutter somewhere. You've probably heard you probably heard this from your parents a lot when you were younger, but don't let your sister bully you. Oh, uh, I hope you heard that from your parents. <laughs> maybe, maybe you Unfortun didn't. Maybe you just heard it from us for the first yeah, time. You can don't let her bully you. You don't deserve yeah, that. Let Liz be your uh, helpful, gentle yet firm older sibling um, who is like, <laughs> yeah, your other sister is being a real jerk. Let's go eat plums or whatever. Oh God, you know I hate. Fruit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually do know that you hate fruit, and uh, I don't normally. I even get dragged for it every day on the podcast, so it's very weird that I did that just now. I'm sorry. Uh huh. Okay. Will you forgive me for bringing up the forbidden subject if I let you read our final letter? You know, I'll think about it. Let me see how I feel after see the letter. I need your approval. <laughs> okay, no subject, just dear prudence. I am a 28-year-old transmasculine person. For anyone who doesn't know, I was assigned female at birth. I want a male body, but I don't really know that I fall completely into either gender category. To be more specific, I'm a gender-fluid transmasculine person. I definitely feel more comfortable with my chosen name and male pronouns than what I was assigned at birth. As far as I'm concerned, I've truly accepted that my personality and behavior doesn't always 
perfectly reflect my gender. But my problem lies in two places. On the one hand, my parents, who I love deeply and have accepted will probably never see eye to eye on everything with me, think that I'm too feminine to be trans and that my desire to transition, even in the smallest ways, is a mistake I will regret. This is less about hate and more about concern for their youngest child. They simply don't understand and are still coping with the idea of losing their daughter. And really, who's to say that the way I behave is too feminine for a male? On the other hand, the woman I'm talking to knows about all of that and tells me she accepts me for who I am. That's great. I should be ecstatic, right? Except somehow I'm not. I'm always fearful that she'll wake up one morning and realize I'm too feminine for her, or maybe just not enough of a man. She made no indication this would ever happen, quite the opposite, but I still have these worries. How do I reconcile the fact that I've accepted my identity and am able to say that too feminine is preposterous when it comes to my parents' ideas, yet I'm still worrying about the exact same thing with the woman I like? And let me just tell you something, letter writer, right off the bat. Um, we all have these worries. I'm binary trans, but I understand being afraid that your partner is going to look at you one day and decide that you are not enough of the gender that you say you are, or that you have somehow not uh, matched up with the stereotypes exactly as you should. And that's a fear that doesn't go away, but it is a fear that will not haunt you the way it is doing so now. And as for your parents, you don't have to accept that they think that you're too feminine to be trans and that you're going to regret transitioning. That's not something that you have to see eye to eye on. That's a very deep level, um, just personhood thing. And that's not something you should be made to doubt or worry over. Uh, and I think that your question, how do you reconcile the fact that I've accepted my identity has its roots there in that you have this, very strong, very unfortunate um, gulf between you and your parents and that they are making you doubt that you are trans mask because that's, that's ridiculous. You are the moment that you said I'm trans, you were trans, you were enough. You did not need to fill any stereotypes. You did not need to look a certain way, act a certain way. You know who you are. Yeah. I find this so like, affecting in part because you will often hear um, people criticizing or being really hard on trans people for saying, oh, you're responsible for reinforcing gender stereotypes. When in fact, we can see like the ways in which someone expressing like a trans identity, people will get so rigid about, well, this is the only way to be like a man or a male or a masculine person. And if you don't fit in those parameters, you can't join. Um when yeah. it, and as a trans woman, I can tell you firsthand that people are always going to be looking for ways that you don't successfully stand up to the image in their head of what your gender should be. And that's not on you. That's them. Yep. Yeah. And that, you know, expressing a gender identity does not mean that you are saying, like, by the way, I plan on being super gender conforming. Um, like, yeah. it's, it's wild uh, to me that people would think that those are the same thing. Um, so number one, I would say, I think you're right in acknowledging that your parents don't hate you. They're not coming from a place of hate. Uh, that does not mean that they are not coming from a place of some transphobia. And I think we often see a kind of gentler, softer transphobia coming from people's families that will say something along the lines yep. of whether directly or indirectly. Sure. Trans people are, they are real. They exist, but I don't think you're one. Um, and that implicitly sets up your parents, who I assume are cisgender, as the sort of gatekeepers of your gender identity. Like, if you could somehow prove to me that you had demonstrated sufficient masculine characteristics, then I would believe you. Um, but your word is not good enough. Um, so I I I'm going to deny you validation, affirmation. Um, I'm going to question you. I'm going to, you know you know, follow you around with a little gender notebook and be like, I don't know, you just like talked a lot with your hands or, or whatever. Um, and that's it's like, you don't enjoy grilling quite enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you don't have a big green egg or, or whatever, you know, whatever other gender ideas they've yeah. got going for you. Um, and that that's just, and also the letter writer, the phrasing that you used that they're still coping with the idea of losing their daughter. Um, 
my mother used that phrase with me too. And something I had to explain to her and something that you might have to explain to your parents is that they're not losing a daughter. They are gaining a child who was hidden under layers of dysphoria and an identity that wasn't actually them. Like they're not losing anything. They're, they're getting their child back. Right. And, and if they have and moments it, where they need to talk about or deal with those feelings, they can go to a PFLAG meeting. They can go to a therapist. Yep. They can talk to other parents of trans kids. That's not something they need to put on you. Like if, if you're trying to say, hey, this is my identity. I'm trying to move towards a future that I can visualize myself in and be happy and, and have an internal and external sense of consistency that brings me joy. Um, if their response is, let me share the ways in which that makes me sad when I think about you when you were seven. Um, That's not okay. And again, that doesn't mean that they're trying consciously to hurt you. But the net result is it tells you this this self-determination that is allowing you to live um, in a new and an honest and an open and a self-loving way for the first time in a a long time uh, crushes me as your parent. And that's too much to put on you. So they need to take that elsewhere. They need to deal with that. And that's what they need to do. Their goal needs to be to deal with that. Um, Because like, as Mm -hmm. you said, Elizabeth, they are not losing you. Um, They are gaining a new understanding of you. Parts of you are going to, you know, possibly shift as as you feel more free to express yourself as a gendered person. Um, But I, I really don't like it. When cis people will say something like, especially family members, I feel like I'm losing my daughter, sister, brother, you know, whatever. Um, I feel like there's been it's a death. It's a shitty way, way to do like, that. Don't... It's like they're thinking about it in terms of death when for us it is only, for trans people I should say, it is only ever a form of rebirth and of actually being able to live fully in our bodies and in society. Yeah, and I think sometimes cis people don't understand how painful it is if somebody finally can articulate this is how I can see myself alive in the future. And somebody and responds you, to that with, no. well, I feel like someone's dying. Holy smokes. Please don't do that to somebody. Um, that um, is not a good the response. Other part of your, Sorry, go ahead. Well, the other part of that was that the woman, letter writer, the woman you're talking to, I understand, trust me, I understand worrying that your partner is going to just one day up and leave you because you're not conforming enough for their tastes. And I can, and it, as a as a gender fluid trans person, as a gender fluid trans masculine person, you have even more pressure on you for being uh, feeling that you're fake. But so long as this woman is supporting you and telling you that this isn't going to happen and she's not going to do that to you, you have to try and stop listening to the poison that cis people have poured into your ear and listen to her and believe her when she tells you, "I like who you are." I am interested in building a relationship and seeing where it will go. Yeah. Yeah. That's just great advice. And just if nothing else, like I love feminine guys, feminine transmasculine people. Like there is a there is a contingent of people out there who are 100 <laughs> percent picking up what you're putting down. Um, so mm-hmm. if nothing else, just know what you have described sounds like a fantastic combination uh, in a human person. And I am super here for it. And I think it's great. And uh there are other people who will feel that way too. So, um, there's, yeah, there's, you are not unlovable. You are not doomed to a life of loneliness. Not only do you have a, a found family who will accept you, you will have people who will sit, look at you and say, I could be with them. I could grow to love them. Yep. This, you're going to be okay. Yeah, I, is the, end and regardless of where your relationship with this particular woman goes, I just hope you know if anybody you are dating or contemplating dating or even just, you know, having one night with on your college rugby team, um, if anybody either directly or indirectly communicates that they think of you as something less than a man, like if those are the two categories they have for people and you are an insufficient version of one thing, that is not the person for you. Um, you do not have to put up with that in order to receive love, attention, sex, affection, um, that is a person they don't deserve who, who you are is going to hurt you so look for people who would say what an awesome combination of things for a person to be i am super into your whole deal let's make out a whole bunch i love what you're putting down <laughs> um and those people are out there they are awesome you will maybe not want to date and or play rugby with all of them but they are real and they exist and they are not just going to be like eh, i guess i'll round you up to this thing that i think is better 
Um, you, you and some of them will want to discuss gender theory. Some with of you. them will. That's okay. Too. Some of them will, and some of them will want to, you know, do other stuff while discussing gender theory, and they're going to be fabulous. Playing rugby while discussing gender theory, oh, for example. I think we just invented Oberlin. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure we should be. It's my favorite new sport. Royalties. It's like one of the five colleges I know the names of. I'm very proud of myself for making that joke. I'm like, I've heard of that place. I applaud um, you. The best reference I made was a Shakespeare play. So you definitely are like several points ahead of me. If 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 today's <laughs> advice was a rugby game, which sure, why not? I've never seen a rugby game and I don't know how it's scored. You're how is it scored? Uh, up in the scrum, and I've been pitched. Are definitely <laughs> real rugby terms. See, I am almost certain that you have mixed up rugby and cricket. I probably have because in my mind they're both <laughs> things I don't know what they are. And I try to just murmur vocabulary. So now I'm interested in watching a uh, game of rugby played with cricket bats. That would be, um, I would 100% watch that sport. Once again, we have invented something remarkable that I, I think we need to start somehow we need making to money off of. Definitely. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your wisdom and compassion. And um, of course, it was a I'm pleasure. Sorry again for bringing up fruit. And for doing it again just You know, now. it's okay. I, for, I forgive you. I still love you. I really you. appreciate that. And honestly, I really needed to hear that today. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling, and our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe now. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute. Tops. And one more thing for our Spanish-speaking listeners. Check out El Gabfest en Español, Slate's first Spanish-language podcast. Each week, award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, and writer Leon Krause hosts a discussion of the U.S. and international news of the week, as well as sports and culture. Subscribe to El Gabfest wherever you get your podcasts. Slate Plus listeners get a bonus section in English. 